Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Take your Bibles out. Uh, find Mark chapter 12, verse 35. As you're finding the key text, uh, let me just tell you a little story. You know, as a pastor, you always hope that when you deliver a message, that God will use it to help uh, you see Jesus better and actually to change your life. And last week, I know for sure that happened with one person in the sanctuary among us. Remember, I opened a, with an illustration last week of the Record Setter website. A man named Kenny Stantin, who is a youth pastor, holds the record for saying, I love you to his wife the most times in 30 seconds. It was 69 times. Well, our youth pastor, Chris Snyder, heard that illustration and he said, you know, I think I can beat that. So immediately after the service and for the first few days of the week, he practiced saying, I love you as fast as he possibly could. And then at youth group on Wednesday night, he was able to say, I love you to Bridget 86 times. So we do have it on video. It's been uploaded to the Record Setter website and is waiting for official verification that he now will hold the new world's record for saying, I love you to his wife the most time in 30 seconds. You know, this is the first time for me I've ever given a sermon in response to it. Somebody went out and broke a world record because of it. <laughs> So if that's what happened last week, I don't know what's going to happen this week. So hold on to your seats. So let's go ahead and uh, stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read our key text this morning, which is a very short text. It's chapter 12 of Mark 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, Well, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. That ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. The big question in life is, who is Jesus? And your answer to that question will determine what he is to you when you die. In your death, he will either be your savior in that moment, or he will be your judge in that moment. And the Gospel of Mark has been helping us to come to the proper conclusion on the identity of Jesus. Mark has shown us time and again of the countless amazing miracles of Jesus and the healings that he has done. It doesn't matter what the debilitation of the disease, even leprosy itself, with just a touch or just a word, he heals people instantly and completely with the kind of power that only God has. And we've seen also in the face of horrific demonic opposition and demonic possession, the demons scatter like cockroaches when the lights go on in the very presence of Jesus because he has complete authority and complete power over them. Mark has been leading us to the conclusion that Jesus is more than just a man. Jesus is the man who is God. 
And we are going to see coming up in the next few weeks that Jesus will do his greatest miracle of all. Even after he is crucified, dead, and buried, he will rise from the grave, which is something that only God can do. Well, while Jesus has provided abundant evidence uh, about what his identity is throughout his life, the religious leaders around him have been hard-hearted against that evidence. They've refused to consider it. They've refused to listen to it. They hate Jesus, and they're trying to get rid of Jesus. And this morning, in this very small section that we looked at, in what is a short but very impactful verse, Jesus unpacks for them his true identity, that he is more than just an ordinary man. This verse reveals to us that he is indeed the man who is God. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're here this morning as somebody who is wrestling with Jesus and what is his identity. Maybe you are somebody who has great admiration and respect for Jesus, but you're on the, the bubble with these things. You haven't decided if he is indeed the man that is God. My hope is that as we study this very short section, which are the very words of Jesus, that Jesus' exposition of this scripture would push you over the edge and you would trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Before we get into the text itself, we're going to need a little bit of background. First, we're going to look at some historical background that is important to know, and then we'll give you the biblical background that is important to know, and we'll jump into the exposition of our text. So let's begin with the background. First, the historical. The Jews believed the Messiah would be no more than a man. The Jews of Jesus' day, and even the Jews of the modern day, have always believed that the Messiah would be no more than just an ordinary human being. Now, they believed he would be raised up by God, he would be a great earthly ruler of immense influence, of immense importance. They believed that he would lead Israel back to national greatness. They believed that he would fulfill the promises that God had given to Abraham and the promises that God had given to David. But they believed that as to his identity, he would be no more than just a, a man. And we can see some of the Old Testament prophecies that would talk about the Messiah's greatness as a military leader and as a national leader. For instance, in your outlines, I put down Numbers 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. This is the kind of image that the Jews had of their Messiah, that he would be a savior but of a national way, of a, a, a way to raise Jew, the Jewish people back to national and um, international prominence and importance. 
the Jews did not see that the Messiah would be a savior of individual souls. Now, this actually brought them into direct conflict with Jesus. As we'll see a little bit later on this morning, there were a number of people that were in the crowds that were beginning to suspect and even beginning to identify that perhaps Jesus was indeed this long-awaited Messiah of old, the Old Testament. But the problem that the Jewish leaders had with this was Jesus refused to identify himself as just a man. He identified himself as more than a man. He identified himself as the man who was God. And that is what brought him into direct conflict with these Jewish leaders. For instance, we see in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. God the Son and God the Father are so intimately and tightly woven together, they are, they are literally one. And then if you go to John chapter 14, verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So to see me speak is to see the Father speak. To see the Father speak is to see me speak. We are so, we're distinct, but we're so tightly woven together, it's almost like we are one. See, see, Jesus is very clearly identifying himself as God. Then when you get down to the end of the Gospel of John, we read this. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Let me pause there. Christ is, um, Christ in Greek is the same thing as Messiah in Hebrew. It's the anointed one. It's the promised one. It's the one who has been, been promised in Old Testament scriptures. So when you see Messiah in the Old Testament and you see Christ in the New Testament, it's synonymous terms, just different languages. So John says here, these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, but then he qualifies it. Who is the Christ? The Son of God. Fully man and also fully God. So that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's only by believing that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God, who came and he lived, he died in our place, and rose from the grave by believing that, that you can have eternal life. That is the historical background. Now let's jump on to the biblical background we need as we get into these short verses. You'll remember that there's a conflict that is going on between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. That began actually back in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And this conflict was stoked by Jesus' triumphal entry, but it really came to a head when Jesus went into the temple courts and he kicked out the money changers and he kicked out those who were selling animals in the temple courts. And the religious leaders turned and said to Jesus, well, who gave you the authority to do this? Who do you think you are? kicking these people out of the very temple grounds where we are in charge. So first what happened was there was open conflict between the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish leadership in Jesus. And Jesus won in those open conflicts every time. 
So then they decided that they would regroup and sort of do more hidden conflict. You remember, first they sent a group of Pharisees to try and trick and trap Jesus with questions about paying taxes to Caesar. And when that didn't work, they sent a group of Sadducees to trick and trap Jesus with questions about the resurrection. And then last week, they sent a lone scribe to ask Jesus questions about the greatest commandment. And on every single one of these little covert tricks and traps, Jesus handled them well. In fact, at the end of the time, it was the religious leaders who walked away with egg on their face, not Jesus. I like the way it ends where we were last week. It says this in Mark chapter 12, verse 34. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You mess with Jesus, you lose every single time. That's what they've learned. But now at this point, as we get to verse 35, the tables turn. Instead of them asking questions of Jesus, now Jesus starts asking questions to them. And that is what we find in this section. So the first thing we see here is Jesus affirmed the Messiah would be a descendant of David. By the way, I would like to actually begin by looking at Matthew rather than Mark. As we've learned, Mark is sort of the cliff notes. It's the really short gospel. Uh, Matthew and Luke sometimes give more, more details. They expand a little bit. So let me just begin in Matthew, who expands a little bit here. Matthew 22, 41 through 42. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, that's the Messiah of the Old Testament, the Anointed One, whose son is he? And they said to him, well, he's the son of David. So Jesus doesn't put himself in the middle of the question. He just asks sort of an innocent question. The, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, whose son is he? Where is he coming from? And they jump into saying, well, he is the son of David. He is a descendant of David. He's part of the bloodline of David. Now let's jump back to the Gospel of Mark that we read this morning. And you can see the conversation picks up there. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, So how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? How can these scribes, who are the intellectual elites of Judaism, say that the Christ is the son of David? But here's a better way to put it. How can they say he is no more than just an earthly son of David. Let me show you uh, this first thing. That's the first thing we're going to see is that, by the way, it's right that the Christ would be an earthly descendant of David because the Old Testament prophecies predicted that the Messiah would be a son of David, a descendant of David, as to his human ancestry. You remember that uh, sort of the, the golden age of Israel was under King David. The Israel rose to its greatest point of prominence. Some of you may say that maybe the golden age was actually under David's son Solomon, and that's true and not true. Because while Solomon was incredibly wise, he was also incredibly foolish. The Bible tells us that he chose to marry foreign wives. And when he chose to go down that path, Israel as a nation began to decline severely and directly. In fact, 
It was when his son took over power after his death, his son's name was Rehoboam, that the nation split into civil war. Jeroboam, who was somebody different, actually took over leadership of the northern ten tribes, and Rehoboam had the leadership of the southern two tribes. And this civil war was not a short one. This civil war lasted for generations between the northern and southern kingdom as they fought each other and destroyed each other. And eventually, Assyria came and took the northern kingdom into captivity. Then eventually, the Babylonians came and took the southern kingdom into captivity. So what happened was a great decline after King David in the, the power, the importance, and the prominence of Israel as a nation. But while the nation was in decline, and while they were in captivity, the people held on to promises. Promises that one day God would raise up a Messiah, and he would restore this nation of Israel back to prominence and importance. Promises like this one found in 2 Samuel chapter 12, or chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, this is speaking to David, by the way, and you lie with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, who will be your descendant, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? forever. Well, that hasn't happened. <laughs> the kingdom went into decline, and they were taken into captivity. Or how about Psalm 89, 3 through 4? You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So the people are holding on to this promise that there will be a biological, physical descendant of King David, who is the Messiah, who is going to be the Christ, who will return Israel back to its national prominence and national importance. But at this point, uh, people have seen Jesus. They've seen Jesus' constant, miraculous healings. They've seen Jesus preaching with power and authority to the crowds. They, they've seen Jesus casting out demons, and everyone is starting to gather around Jesus. And you know what the common people are starting to think? Maybe this Jesus is indeed the very son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. But in their minds, remember who that Messiah is. He is nothing more than a great human being. He is not a divine being. In fact, we can see this if you look at how some people have addressed Jesus. Remember, two blind men addressed him this way. And Jesus passed on from them. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Or Bartimaeus. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me saying that, Jesus, maybe you're that long-awaited Messiah. Or remember the triumphal entry? What were the crowds saying to him? And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
For us, the idea that Jesus is a biological descendant of David uh, isn't really that important to us. But in that culture and in that generation who were holding on to these Old Testament promises that the one to restore the kingdom would be a biological son of David, you needed to make sure that Jesus did indeed fulfill those earthly human promises. That is why if you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, what does Matthew begin with? Anybody remember? A lengthy genealogy tracing Jesus' descent from Abraham through David all the way down to Joseph, his earthly adoptive father. You go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. What do you find? Another genealogy tracing Jesus' lineage through David, once again, but all the way down to his biological mother, Mary. So we find that Jesus is actually a descendant of David, a son of David, on both his adoptive father's side and his biological mother's side. Because according to the Old Testament prophecies, the one who would be the Messiah would have to fulfill those things. Incidentally, you could not just simply claim your descent. You had to prove your descent. Many people don't know that the, actually the genealogical records were kept in the temple. And so when somebody said that they were part of a, the line of David, it was actually gone to the temple, and the religious leaders checked the genealogical records to prove that you were indeed a descendant of somebody. And you can make sure that, or you can bet, that when Jesus claimed to be a son of David and the Christians claimed that he was the son of David and he was the Messiah, you bet they checked those genealogical records to make sure it was indeed true. But here's where it gets interesting. Jesus reveals that the Messiah, the long-awaited son of David from the Old Testament, was actually going to be more than just a mere man. This is what he does next. David himself in the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And sort of Jesus leaves it hanging there for them to ponder that question. Wait a minute, the Messiah is David's son, but he's also David's Lord. How does that work? Now, let me take this apart a little bit at a time. What Jesus has done is he's gone back to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was considered to, by the Jews to be messianic and to have prophecy and predictions of Christ in it. He went to verse 1 in that psalm, and he says, you, you scribes, you religious leaders, you theological elite, you guys seem to be missing some very important things here when you overlooked this verse. Now let's work our way through it. The first thing Jesus says, by the way, this verse is inspired by God. He says, David spoke in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not to say that other parts of the Bible are not inspired by God. That's not the point. What Jesus is doing is he's emphasizing that these are not merely David's random words, 
David is speaking the very words of God here, so what he's saying is not in error, and you need to listen to it. And here's what he points out. There are two people called Lord in this verse. The Lord said to my Lord. Well, all of a sudden, there's something that's a little different here. Let me unpack these. And by the way, you don't see this in the Greek, but you see this in the Old Testament Hebrew when you go to it. There are two different Hebrew words used for Lord in Psalm 110, verse 1. The first word for Lord, where it says, the Lord, in some of your Bibles will be in all capital letters, because that is the Hebrew name Yahweh. That is the holy name of God. It's the name that God revealed himself to when he spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Yahweh is the sacred name of God, and when Jews would see the uh, term Yahweh in the scriptures, they wouldn't even pronounce it out loud out of sacredness for God. But here we find the Lord said to my Lord. Now, who is my Lord? In Hebrew, it's not Yahweh. At that point, the name becomes Adonai. Adonai means Lord or Master, sort of like the CEO, the one who is in charge of everything. So what we find is the Lord said to the one who is the master or in charge of everything, you sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. Hmm. A couple things to notice. By the way, uh, you should know that sometimes Yahweh and Adonai are used together to describe the same person. An example with that would be Psalm verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And where it says, O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Yahweh, you're the CEO in control of everything in all the earth. Referring to the same person. But when you go to Psalm 110, verse 1, here's where it gets interesting. Yahweh and Adonai are different people. David is listening in on the divine conversation. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool of your feet. Well, who would be David's Lord? Can't be another human being. David is king. There is no other human beings who are above him. Who would be his Lord before whom he would bow? What we find is that person before whom he bows is actually a divine being sitting at God the Father's right hand. So let's start to put these pieces together. Who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? Well, as for biological descent, he is a son of David. He is a human being in David's biological line. But he's also not just David's son, he's David's Lord who sits at the right hand of God the Father. In other words, he's a man, but he's also the man who is God. 
the man who, holds, who is God who holds the highest place of authority in the universe. This is why Jesus ends with this question. David himself called him Lord. How is he his son? It's interesting. This conflict began back uh, at the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. Jesus, what, where do you find the authority to kick out the money changers? Where do you find the authority to kick out the animal sellers in the temple? Who do you think you are? There's the answer. I may be a biological descendant of David, but I'm also the man who is God. In fact, I like the way that Matthew says this whole thing ends. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Because Jesus has provided irrefutable evidence that he's not just a man, but he is the man who is God, according to Psalm 110, verse 1. And they have no way to refute it. And that's where his authority comes from. Now, if you were some of the religious leaders, what do you think you should have done at this point when Jesus has exposed the scriptures to you and you realize maybe you missed something major, something important? Maybe some confession would be good, a little bit of humility. Say, well, I never noticed that in the scriptures before. Thank you for showing me this. I just need to really process this. This is a big concept about who the Messiah is going to be. That's not what they do at all. What they do is they harden their hearts against Jesus and refuse to listen to the truth about Jesus. So the religious leaders hardened themselves against the truth, we find, and they were lost. See what happens after this. Let me tell you what these religious leaders do. Mark chapter 14, verse 43, the chief priests and the scribes come with clubs to arrest Jesus. Mark chapter 14, verse 53, the chief priests and the scribes gathered together to actually condemn Jesus. Mark chapter 15, verse 1, the chief priests and the scribes, they hand Jesus over to Pilate to hopefully have him crucified in the face of abundant evidence on the identity of Jesus, evidence that comes from his countless miracles, evidence that comes from the fact that he has literally cast demons out. Evidence that comes from the scripture itself. They harden their heart against it. And they would not listen. Now the question comes for us. You and I, we have been given abundant evidence for the identity of Jesus. We've read our Bibles. We've sat under the teaching of the Bibles. But have we also hardened our heart against him? Do we truly believe that he is the man who is God? What does this mean for me? Two things. Number one, I need to decide what I believe about the identity of Jesus. The religious leaders, in the face of abundant evidence, decided against Jesus, and as a result... They were eternally lost. Look what it says in the scriptures. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I don't have an answer is not an acceptable answer. The only way to be brought into a relationship with God is to place your faith in the man who is God. Or 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And some of you may say, well, I'm in church. I mean, who today is going to try to take me away from this belief? Who is going to tell me that Jesus is not indeed man and God? You want some lists? Go to the Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll tell you right up front that Jesus is the first created being. They'll say he is not God in the flesh. Go to the Mormons. They will tell you that Jesus is one among many gods and that you too can become a god. But what does the scripture say in John 3.16? Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. You're not a God, I'm not a God, and we never will be. Only Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Go to the Muslims. What will they say? Jesus, they say, is certainly not God. He is just a good prophet. He is just a man. A great man. Sort of like what the ancient Jews and what modern Jews believe. A man but nothing more. And the honest truth is, those are all one-way trips to hell itself. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the only Son of God. One other challenge here. Hearing about Jesus gladly doesn't save anybody. You notice how it ended? It talks about the response of the crowd. They heard about him gladly. You see, the religious leaders rejected Jesus overtly and openly. But the crowds rejected Jesus covertly and subtly. In other words, they were glad to see Jesus win these little uh, theological fights with the religious leaders, but they never responded to the truth of Jesus that was revealed to them. They were glad to hear the truths about Jesus, but they never intended to surrender their lives to Jesus. Folks, it's not enough to say, I believe that Jesus is fully man and fully God. You have to respond to the truth of Jesus being fully man and fully God. James chapter 2 says that even the demons believe and shudder. But the belief of demons is not saving belief. The beliefs of demons is they do believe that Jesus is fully man and fully God, but they don't respond to that belief and let him be in charge of their life. Demons say that we want to live life our way. But the reality is, if Jesus is fully man and fully God, we have to live like life his way. So I want to ask you this morning, are you someone here who has demon-like faith? Where you do believe that Jesus is fully man and fully God, but you have no interest in letting him be in charge of your life. You live as if you're in charge of your life. 
But if Jesus is the one who is seated at the right hand of God the Father in the place of all authority in the universe, he has to be in the place of all authority in your universe, or he's not your Savior. That's the honest truth. Do you hear the truths about Jesus gladly without responding to Jesus and making him your identity? Let me put it this way. Many people have been raised in the church and they believe, well, Jesus is fully man and fully God. I've heard that since I was two. And they believe that is a point of doctrinal truth. But they haven't made that a point of their own personal truth. If Jesus is fully man and fully God, let me say it again, and he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, the place of the highest authority in the universe, and he is our Adonai, and he is our master, he has to be in charge of our life. Augustine said it this way. I ran across a quote from him this week. If Christ is not valued above all, he is not valued at all. If Christ is not valued above all in our life, he is not valued at all in our life. Are you someone who gladly hears the teachings of Jesus without submitting your life to Jesus? This morning, is the Holy Spirit working on your heart? Is the Holy Spirit leading you to the point of conviction where you've known the doctrinal truth? but you haven't asked Jesus to be the one who guides and directs your life, if the Holy Spirit is working in your heart right now, I want to tell you that now is the time of repentance. Now is the time not to harden your heart, but to respond with your heart. Now is the time to make a decision and say, Lord Jesus, I repent. I have known the truth, but I haven't ever lived this truth. I've been in charge of my life. Jesus hasn't been in charge of my life. You need to understand, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning, there are a limited number of times where the Holy Spirit will take us to the carpet and convict us of those things. We have to choose to respond to those things. We don't know when the Holy Spirit will convict us this way again or if he will do it at all. So I beg you this morning, don't just know the doctrinal truth that Jesus is fully man and fully God, and that he's at the right hand of God in the universe. But live that doctrinal truth. Let him be at the point of authority in your universe. As Augustine said, if Christ is not Lord of all, He's really not Lord at all. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for not just being a biological son of David, but for being the man who is God. It's so hard to get our mind wrapped around this truth. The truth is easy to roll off the lips, but it's so hard to get into our heart. I pray this morning that we wouldn't just know this doctrinal truth, but we would own the identity of this truth. 
Holy Spirit, if you are convicting some this morning who have lived as if they're in charge of their life instead of letting you be in charge of their life, I ask that you would bring them to the point of confession and repentance today. We know that when we confess our sin, Jesus, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray that you would do that today. And I pray that for many from this point forward, there would be a new day, a new leaf turned, where Jesus is not just Lord and Master of the universe, but he is Lord and Master of the hearts and lives of everyone in this room. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.